Good afternoon. For those who are first seeing this um, video or hearing this recording on um, DVD or MP3, the first few minutes of this recording or are happening not live. That's because the original lecture, the first few minutes were lost. I did point out in the beginning of the lecture that the source sheet has been changed. There were new sources added. If you're looking at the source sheet, which is found on the website, you'll notice that there are more sources. If you follow the source sheet, though, you should be able to follow, follow the lecture as well. We ended off last week discussing Hadrian's final solution. That after the third final bloody war with Hadrian in the Roman legions, in which the Roman legions suffered greatly, and a 22nd legion was completely wiped out. Seven legions were involved. And Rome was put to the test. So much so, we pointed out that Hadrian was unable and unwilling to tell the Roman Senate the traditional greeting of congratulations upon his victory at Betar. Hadrian then implemented the final solution, his final solution. First, he tried to uproot the Jewish people from the land of Israel. He tried to change the name from Judea to Palestine, the name that would stick to the land of Israel all the way until 1948. Indeed, the original mandate for Great Britain, for Britain, over Palestine was the mandate for Palestine. That name came from the Philistines. That was to uproot the Jewish connection. Hadrian changed the name of Jerusalem to Ayala Capitolina. And he, in place of the temple, he built a temple to Jupiter, the famous Roman god. He built the Cardo in the old city in order to show that this was a Roman city. And he only allowed the Jewish people to come back to Jerusalem once a year on Tishabot. But that was not it. Hadrian tried to destroy the Jews spiritually. He banned circumcision, he banned teaching or studying Torah, and he banned any public observance of mitzvahs or customs. Hadrian tried to totally annihilate the spirit of the Jewish people. What he tried to accomplish was to make up for Vespasian's mistake. Because as we said a couple of weeks, said in the beginning of last week, excuse me, that Vespasian allowed Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai to escape Jerusalem at the end of the Great Revolt. And he allowed the Sanhedrin to go, to, to be, to, 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 he allowed the Sanhedrin to exist in Yavna. He allowed for the Davidic line, the line of Hillel with Rabbi Gamliel to exist. And he allowed the Tzadik Hadur, Rabbi Tzadik, not to, to be killed, and in fact, treated him for his 40 years of starvation and he recuperated as well. Hadrian chased the Sanhedrin. In fact, the Sanhedrin had to go into hiding. And indeed, had Hadrian lived longer, most likely, we would not be here today. It's kind of like if Hitler would have been around for 10 more years, let alone, let, let alone to our very day, we would not be here if Hitler would have beat Russia and would have knocked out Great Britain, there would be no more world Jewry. 
Had Hadrian lived just a few more years, he would have uprooted the Torah existence of Jews throughout the Roman Empire. Fortunately for us, Hadrian dies within three years after the Bar Kokhba revolt and dies in the year 138 of the Common Era. Hadrian is replaced by a much more benevolent, not only to the Roman Empire, but certainly to the Jews, Emperor Marcus Antonius, excuse me, Antonius Pius, who would rule for many years, and then by Marcus Aurelius, both of whom would treat the Jews differently. Nevertheless, Hadrian's final solution put the Jewish people at alarm. That at this point they realized they were in danger of losing who they were. And indeed, in the days of darkness of Hadrian, it really looked black. If you were a betting man, in the year 136 of the Common Era, you'd have to bet that the Jewish people were done. Like Carthage, like so many other great empires, they were finished. Nobody could have in their wildest dreams imagined that we would be here today, let alone several hundred years later. The Jewish people had been annihilated. You had Hadrian, the most powerful emperor of the world, proactively trying to uproot and destroy any remnant of Torah amongst the Jewish people. It was a time of depression. And in this time, there were certain great sages, some of whom we'll talk about tonight, who held the banner up high, who not only provided spiritual nourishment for their generation, but to our very day, we live from their words. That was Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva's chief disciple, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was the author, author of the Zohar, the primary work of Kabbalah, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's son, Rabbi Eliezer, who followed in his father's footsteps, and Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel, who was a descendant of the house of Hillel, and a direct descendant of David. Jewish history, any history, is a history of people. The dates, places, and events are only to give social studies teachers or history teachers papers to grade. They only allow us to see to know basic knowledge. They do not tell the story of history. They do not tell the story of the world. And certainly in the Jewish people, certainly Jewish history is not made up of dates and numbers by the great individuals who led and made the Jewish people. Amongst the many great figures in Jewish history, Rabbi Akiva arguably represents a combination of everything that is heroic about the Jewish people more than anyone else. At least he is one of the most, if not the most, beloved individual in Jewish history. He was so great that the Talmud in Menachos Chavtes 29 compares Rabbi Akiva to Moshe Rabbeinu. In the Jewish lexicon, that is the greatest compliment of all. What was so great about Rabbi Akiva? Why is Rabbi Akiva to the, our very day a source of inspiration? Firstly, Rabbi Akiva lacked lineage. Rabbi Akiva represents every man to speak, so to speak. He did not 
descend from Jewish aristocracy or nobility. He came from a family of converts. There is an opinion that his father is a convert, another opinion holds as his grandfather, but one thing is clear. Rabbi Akiva is a direct descendant of the Jewish, of the arch enemy of the Jews, Sisra. Sisra, the general who tried to annihilate the Jewish people and who ruled over the, the Jewish people for, harshly for 20 years and who died in the days of Devorah, of Deborah, and who we mentioned about his mother crying on Rosh Hashanah, we blow either 100 or 101 chauffeur blows. Reikiva is a direct descendant of this Sisra. Reikiva, so to speak, is the person who comes from nowhere. He is middle Israel. He is the individual who lacks ichos. Most individuals, if they know their great-grandfather was a murderer of Jews, if they know their great-grandfather was an arch-enemy of Jews, they don't walk around saying, I can be the next Jewish great. I'll be a great Jew. I'll be a great Jewish leader. Imagine in our day, if somebody was a descendant of Hitler, Yamach Shemo, would he go around saying, would he go around thinking that he could be great? Look at my yichos. Rabbi Akiva didn't let that bother him. He didn't look at his handicap of his lineage, of his pedigree. He looked, what could he do? The second reason why Rabbi Akiva was great, and the second handicap he had, is that Rabbi Akiva, who will ultimately be the leader of the generation, the leader of generations, Chazal, our sages, tell us that Rabbi Akiva is Rosh HaChachamim, he is the head of all sages. He is the head of all the sages of the Talmud are students of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, until the age of 40, was unlettered and unschooled. This unlettered and unschooled individual would become as great as Moshe Rabbeinu. And I won't repeat the whole story because most of us know it. Rabbi Akiva, at the age of 40, goes to a, the river... And he sees a rock, and the, the rock had made, made a hole through the water dripping on the rock. And he said to himself, the Apostolic in Eov, Yudalad Yutas 14, 19, that water wears down rock. And even great stones are rubbed smooth by the force of water. This became Rabbi Akiva's motto. That just like water wears down rock, so too Akiva can become a scholar. Just like water wears down rock, so too every Jew can and will learn Torah. Just as water wears down rock, so too the Jewish people can and will rebuild the temple. And just like water wears down rock, so too the Jewish people will beat out Rome. We will outlive them. We will beat them because we connect to the greatest source of word to Torah. When did Rabbi Akiva raise to, was, raised to, was risen to prominence? While still illiterate Jewishly, Rabbi Akiva meets the daughter of Kalba ben Savua Rachel. Who is Kalba ben Savua? And our sages tell us that he was called Kalba Savua because anyone who entered Kalba Savua's house left, left satiated. He would fill up everyone. He was a very generous, giving individual. 
one day, the daughter of Kalbas of Rachel, Rachel, meets Rabbi Akiva. And she looks at Rabbi Akiva, and actually there's more than one source this, and she saw the refinement of his character. He saw, she saw how pure he was. Now, interestingly enough, the Talmud says that Rabbi Akiva was so frustrated when he was ignorant that he said if he saw a Torah scholar, that he would bite him if he had a chance. He bite him not like a dog, but like a donkey. Because a donkey breaks the bones. That because he himself was ignorant, at that time he had such a hatred of Torah scholars, even though he's such a refined individual, but it caused amongst himself a hatred. That hatred, which won't be discussed tonight, is always a constant tension. That when you feel out, that feeling of not being there could cause a hatred to those who are. Rabbi Akiva is told by Rachel that she wants to marry him on condition that he becomes a Torah scholar. And that's when Rabbi Akiva went, goes to this river and realizes that if water could make a hole in a rock, Rabbi Akiva could become a Torah scholar. Rabbi Akiva goes for 12 years straight without returning home to study Torah. Actually, according to most sources, he had a child first and then went for 12 years straight. He comes home after 12 years and he hears his wife telling a neighbor, of course, you know, they're always the yentas. Always be careful about the yentas. And there's a yenta, you know, yentas sometimes mean well, but they cause damage. So one of these yentas is telling Rabbi Akiva's wife, where's your husband? Good for nothing. Leaves you for 12 years? What kind of husband is that? Do you know my husband? He makes me suffer every night. Takes care of me. What good is your husband? What kind of husband leaves a wife for 12 years? Rabbi Akiva's wife, Rachel, says, if he would listen to me, he would go for 12 more years and not come back until after 24. Rabbi Akiva, who overheard this conversation, did not, does not even go into the house, turns around and learns for 12 more years. Now, if he's saying, you say, why is that? Because had he stopped, there would have been a pause in his learning. But the tenacity, the water breaking, making a hole in the rock, the goal, being the driven, that was Rabbi Akiva. After 24 years, Rabbi Akiva comes back. He is the greatest sage of Israel. He has 24,000 Talmidim. And he comes back to his wife. Now, Kalba Savua, who had disowned his daughter, disowned Rabbi Akiva, and they went into complete poverty, in the meantime had Harata. He had regrets. Why did he disown his daughter? Why, did, you know, very often in life, parents do things and they, they realize the consequences even years later. And he felt awful for what he did. And he, he heard a great sage, Rabbi Akiva, was coming to the town. He figured he, had, he made an oath never to see his daughter and son-in-law again. He would go to the greatest sage of Israel who was coming to town and ask him to, to, to annul his oath, to be matter his nether, nether. So he comes to Rabbi Akiva, his son-in-law, and he tells him, the Talmud says, that, you know, I regret what I did. I had a son, a daughter, who's a beautiful girl, great in Torah knowledge. She married my ignorant shepherd. And in my wrath, I disowned her. And now it's 24 years later. I feel awful. I would like to annul my oath. So Rabbi Akiva asked him, well, if he wasn't ignorant, let's say he knew one bit of Torah, would you have disowned him? And Kalba Savua says, I give you my word. And this shepherd had known one parak of Torah Shabbat, 
had known one parak, then I would never have disowned my daughter and my son-in-law. So the Kiva says that your oath is annulled. I am your son-in-law. So at that point, Kalba Savua gave him half of his wealth. And of course, they were reconciled. Rekiva ultimately becomes a very wealthy individual. He was very poor. He gets wealth, the Talmud says, from three sources. He had half of Kalba Savua's wealth. The Talmud says he once found a shipwreck. And the third source is remarkable. He was a remarkable individual. Rekiva lived for 120 years, like Moshe Rabbeinu. Compared to Moshe Rabbeinu, his life spans 120 years, like Moshe Rabbeinu. It's questionable if he died on Lag Ba'omer. That's according to many sources. He died on Lag Ba'omer. One of the things that is celebrated at Lag Ba'omer is Rabbi Kiva's death, or as well. But the third source is he ends up marrying after his wife dies. Rachel dies. It was 120 years. It was a long life. He ends up marrying the wife of a convert, or the wife who converted. She was the wife of Tyrannus Rufus. Tyrannus Rufus, the governor at the time of Hadrian, who destroyed Jerusalem with Hadrian. His wife had seen Rabbi Akiva, saw the greatness of Torah, converts, and ultimately marries Rabbi Akiva. And the governor's whole fortune ends up being Rabbi Akiva's fortune. This governor who, who, who Sage says many times dealt with Rabbi Akiva, his fortune ends up being Rabbi Akiva's fortune. But Rabbi Akiva is not known for his material wealth. He's known for his spiritual wealth. Rabbi Akiva, our sages tell us, the Gemara says in Chagiga and in Adarim, that there were four sages that went to the Pardes. In this world, this metaphysical world. And three sages went off. One went insane, one died, and one became a heretic. Rabbi Akiva was at such a level, he was able to go to the highest world and retain his greatness and even become greater. He was the greatest of the sages, and we'll see in a minute or two, that nothing was able to stop him, because he lived with his motto, that whatever and anything is possible. Rabbi Akiva always saw that same thing he saw as a 40-year-old shepherd, that water can make a hole in a rock, that nothing is set in stone, that nothing is set in stone, that even the descendant of Sisra could be the leader of the Jewish people, even a shepherd who knew nothing at age 40 could become a great Jew. Rabbi Kiva was the one to say, This is the general principle of the Torah. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. Chazal tell us that Rabbi Akiva was the Gabite Staka. He was the one in charge of giving Staka to others. Not only did he give stock, he was the person who influenced even the sages to give stock off. There is a remarkable Gemara Harvey, Rabbi Kiva got Rabbi Tarfan, his contemporary, to give even more stock off. Rabbi Kiva was the one who was able to look at Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, and not see it as a crude Song of Songs, like some sages did, but to see the inner beauty of an individual looking to connect to Hashem an individual looking to connect to his creator. And Yekiva, of course, is famous for his statement, that everything that God does is for the good. That whatever happens is for the good. And the Talmud says a famous story, 
that Rabbi Akiva was once traveling at night at the time of the persecutions of Rome. And he, was, he, he went knocking on doors in the city and nobody gave him a place to sleep. And he was forced to go to the forest. And with him he had a donkey, he had a rooster and he lit a candle. That night, a lion ate the donkey. A cat ate the rooster. And the wind blew out the candle and Akiva was forced to sleep in the dark. If this would be us, stop for a minute and be honest with ourselves. We go to a city, time of urban persecutions. This is, you know, in the great outdoors. At this time, the land of Israel has wild animals. Nobody lets you in. You go to a, sleep in the forest and everything goes wrong in that night. Most people, they, they, they would get upset, nervous. Many people would scream, can't believe this is my worst day of my life. How could I do this to me? I'm the greatest agent of Israel. I mean, this is ridiculous. It, it, it's everything that could go wrong went wrong. For the Kiva, calm, cool, collective, whatever God does is for the good. That morning, of course, the Talmud says, the Kiva came to the town which had been wiped out. That the Romans had come that night and destroyed the town. And Rikiva said, had I been in the town, I would have been killed. Had I had my rooster and it would have made noise, the Romans would have heard me. Had I had my donkey in a parade, the Romans may have killed me. And had they seen my candle, they would have seen where I was, they also would have killed me. Command the Everything God does is for the good. The Talmud says at the end of Makkis that the sages on Tishabab went to Harhabais and they saw the temples destroyed. And they all started crying. And the Akiva was laughing. So they said, Akiva, how could you laugh when you see our temple destroyed? So the Akiva, the person who always saw good, even in the time of dark, the person who could see a rock being penetrated by, by water, said, now I understand what the sages said that there would be a day of when boys and girls would play in Jerusalem. That had a temple not been destroyed, we would never see that prophecy. But now that I see the, the prophecies of the temple being destroyed, which Yirmiyahu and Isaiah had prophesied, now I know that the prophecies of Zechariah and the others will come true as well. And there will be a day sooner than our time, when we, in our time, when we, we, should, we should be able to see the temple be rebuilt, but we keep a ne- was going to never give up hope. In a time of complete despair. I mean, you have to imagine, when we keep a singer laughing, he's in Auschwitz, 1944. <laughs> Can you imagine somebody looking at Auschwitz and seeing Lake Yeshiva? Could you imagine somebody being there and seeing, this is, this is, there's going to be a future for us. Do you know the strength of character, the depth of faith, the good eye that a person needs to see that in the gas chambers of Auschwitz? Rabbi Akiva was that person for the Jewish people. He was a person who no matter what, never gave up. Who no matter what, always saw the good. And who no matter what, believed in the eternity of Torah, believed in the eternity of the Jewish people. After Bar Kokhba falls, in 135 of the Common Era, as I mentioned, there was the final solution of Hadrian. Rabbi Akiva had backed Bar Kokhba. Rabbi Akiva had lost, this Chazal tells all 24,000 of his students, and he was almost 120 years old. 
He could have said, enough. I give up. I can't go out anymore. I'm at the end of my life. What does God want from me? Rikiva went back and taught five students again. Rikiva even then didn't give up. And he taught five students, and of those five students, thousands and more came. But the Akiva students did what Bar Kokhba could not. They ultimately outlived and beat Rome. When Rabbi Hadrian had his terrible decrees, including not studying Torah, death sentence, death sentence for any Jew who studies or teaches Torah. Who was the first to go out to teach Torah? Rabbi Akiva. And of course, the Talmud says in the end of Rafas that Papis sees Rabbi Akiva teaching Torah one day. He says, Rabbi, Papis was his friend. What are you doing? You're going to get yourself killed. So Rabbi Akiva gave him the analogy of a fish out of water. He says, we're a fish. We need our water. We can't live without it. And he says, the Jewish people will survive. You'll see. But I'm going to teach Torah. A few days later, Rikiva was actually caught teaching Torah and he was thrown into jail. Concomitantly, concurrently, Papis, who had been in the, you know, again, I think Holocaust, he was doing black market, he was a good guy, but he was black market, he was trying to get around Rome, was caught for being involved in the black market. And he ended up in jail. When Papis sees Rikiva and says, Rabbi, praised are you. You're going to die teaching Torah. Woe is to Papis. I'm going to get died for what? For black market trading. The Akiva, of course, goes out to the Hippodrome in Caesarea. Now, the Hippodrome is there to this day. If you go to Caesarea, to Caesarea, you can see the Hippodrome. It's one of the only like, four or five in the world that's left of the Hippodrome. So with its coliseums where they um, had gladiators and all the things we discussed last week. So the Akiva was taken publicly to the Hippodrome, either an era of Yom Kippur or Yom Kippur of 136 of the Common Era. And our sages tell us that he died, he was combed, his flesh was combed. And as he dies, he sang Shema Yisrael. And his students asked him, Yekiva said, Rebbe, so much? He said, my whole life I waited for this. My whole life was to say Shema Yisrael in the name of God, even as I would die. That was Yekiva. Even on the day of his death, he was always able to connect that to realize the eternity of Hashem, that anything could be caused possible. Rabbi Akiva, of course, died that day. And according to legend, Rabbi Akiva was taken by Eliyahu and buried in Tiberias. If you go to Rabbi Akiva's kever, it's not in Kisario, it is in Tiberias. It's in, Tiber- in Tiberias. Actually, the Ramachal, who we'll discuss for quite a while from now, is buried right near Rabbi Akiva. But Rabbi Akiva really didn't die. In each one of us, we have Rabbi Akiva. Every word of Torah to our day is because of Rabbi Akiva. Every Gemara, every, the essence of the Jewish people, we are only here because of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva was the one who gave the Jewish people the hope, the will to survive, and the knowledge that no matter where, no matter what, it will be the pogroms, the crusades, the Alomahads in Morocco, the Holocaust, we will overcome. We will we can always see the good even in the dark. That the Jewish people are eternal and that Torah will always be learned. And that's why Jewish people treasure him. Rekiva was the hero of heroes. 
He had the warmth, the humanity, the goodness, and the hope that Judaism is always symbolized by, which is the essence of the Jewish people, and Rabbi Akiva is the one who prepared us for the exile. Rabbi Akiva was the one who always remember, reminded us that look at our day and time, and if so many people come from different directions, that water could always make a hole in stone. Who could have imagined, after a Holocaust, you'd have tens of thousands of Jewish boys studying yeshivas today. That you'd have literally, you know, millions of Jewish people coming back slowly to Torah. Hey, who could have imagined in 19, 1945 anything that's today? But Akiva's greatest student is also one of these individuals who was a key individual in rebuilding the Jewish people after the Holocaust of Hadrian, after the Third Roman War. Probably one of the most enigmatic individuals in Jewish history. His name was Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir, which we don't even know his real name, the Talmud questions, was it Rabbi Nechemio? Was it Rabbi Naharai? He was called Rabbi Meir because Rabbi Meir means light. Rabbi Meir was also a descendant of non-Jews. Rabbi Meir, believe it or not, was a direct, this is not that far off, descendant of Nero. The Emperor Nero's great-grandson was Rabbi Mayor. Now, you have to know, if you, you can look, even look at Roman historians, Jews were kicked out of Rome. And this would, of course, key into early Christianity. Rome was, um, was a very pagan, violent society. Judaism, when the, the culture conflict would come, people were impressed with Judaism. And some of the greatest Roman minds, I mentioned last week, Onclus came. Some of the greatest Roman minds joined the Jewish people. Ultimately, though, it was not for the masses. Christianity would tap into that and make it user-friendly for anyone to join. But you have to imagine there were many great minds that came into the Jewish people then. One of them was Rabbi Meir's parents. So Rabbi Meir is a direct descendant from Nero. He also comes from that, that, that background. But he is the bridge. Rabbi Meir was the bridge from the, the, the post-Holocaust generation. He was the Rabbi Aaron Cutler. Coming after, just for a contemporary analogy, Rabbi Aaron Cutler coming after the Holocaust and beginning the seeds to build seeds to turn America. Right? Whenever, you know, you read Rabbi Cutler's life, everything was build, 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 build. Rabbi Eliyamir Bloch was another one. He built tells. Rabbi Eliyamir Bloch, I want you to understand how great this individual was. He lost his wife and kids in the Holocaust. They were murdered in 1941 in tells. Now, he did not have accurate information of that until 1945, until after the war. He assumed they were dead. But there's a letter he writes. Now, the halacha is, if you know people pass away after a long time, and you find information years later, you only sit shiva for a moment. There's no actual shiva. Sir Eliamir Bloch said in this letter, he said, I just found out, confirmed my wife and children were killed, and this is the state and tells. He said, I sat for the moment, and I truly mourned. But now I must go on. I have no time to mourn. I must build. And that is what he did. I must build. I mean, there was in that generation. He was the bridge. The Talmud said that Rehmer was the greatest, the most brilliant of his generation. Interestingly enough, we don't generally pass him like Rehmer. He was too brilliant. 
people couldn't understand him. <laughs> it's interesting today, even some of the greatest minds are not the greatest Shashivas. Because if you have information which nobody can understand, and you can't communicate it, so it's hard to follow it. I mean, if it's too too deep for even his peers to understand, great peers, that's why we, the halacha does not follow Rabbi Meir. Interest beyond that, Rabbi Meir had a second teacher. And this is a contrast I want to make. Rabbi Meir's second teacher was Alisha ben Avua, also known as Acher, the other, or another. Alisha ben Avua was one of the greatest sages who became a heretic, who lost his face. His faith. And there, there are a couple of reasons the Talmud says. One is, he once saw, saw somebody doing the mitzvah of Shiluach HaKain, chasing away the mother bird before taking the baby, which the Torah says merits a person a long life. As this person chased it away, he fell down the tree and died. And he lost his faith. Another reason the Talmud says is he saw his Rabbi Chutzpah, who was one of the ten martyrs, who we mourn for on Tisha B'Av Yom Kippur, who is known as the Golden Tongue. He had his head beheaded. He had said, how could this chutzpah have his tongue removed? He who spread so much Torah. Elisha ben Avila was the opposite of Rabbi Akim. I never saw this, but I always thought this. That why did Ramir have to learn by both? He learned by the Akiva, and he learned by his opposite. Elisha ben Avua was a person who saw Auschwitz and got turned off, and who gave up, who became a heretic. He said, it can't be that God could run the world and let these things happen. Most of the rabbis uh, left Acher. Remer was the exception. Remer, the Gemara says, and Chagia said, I only eat the fruit and I discard the peel. Remer after after Acher dies, Actually, before that, I should say, it's, it, the, he was once walking Acher to, on Shabbos, speaking to the Torah. And they got to the Tchum, the border for Shabbos. And Acher, who was you know, the old-fashioned you know, heretic. Now, today, heretics don't know anything. In those days, you know, the heretics knew something. You know? You know, today, reform rabbi is, is an Amaretz. He doesn't know anything to be a heretic. He's a heretic. He doesn't know, he doesn't know why. But in those days, these were geniuses. Like, you know, 130 years ago in Lithuania, you had people who would desecrate the Sabbath, the new Shas. This is, you know, so Acher is going, Acher is going um, to, to the board, speaking to Rabbi Mary, learning, and he tells Rabbi Mary, you have to turn around now. We're getting to the Tchum Shabbos. You can't go beyond this point. Return to your place. So go back. <laughs> Sir Mayor says, well, just like I'm going to go back and not cross the Tchum Shabbos, why don't you come back with me? Why don't you return and do Tshuva? So Acher says, Elisha ben says, I can't. I already heard a heavenly voice saying everyone can do Tshuva, but for Acher. And our sages say, that really was a test. That Rabbi Akiva of the world would have came back. Because Rabbi Akiva was a person who saw that even in Auschwitz, even after Hadrian, even when I'm 40 years old in a letter, even if, I, even if I'm the grandchild of Sisera, it doesn't make a difference. You can always come back. It's never too late. Everything is possible. Ultimately, Rabbi Meir himself redeems, the Talmud has a very long story, he redeems Acher from Gehenna, 
And he said that if God won't take him out of Gehenim, I'll take him out of Gehenim. That was Rabbi Akiva. That was a strength of Rabbi Akiva. And I really believe, I never saw but I always believe this, and I don't believe this, I, I, I think it's true, that Rabbi Meir learns from both to teach us that the, the example is Rabbi Akiva. That the example ultimately is Rabbi Akiva who, ne- who was able to see Auschwitz and see the good, who never gave up, who saw that the rock could always be broken. You can always make a hole. Rabbi Meir is also known as Rabbi Meir Baal Hanes. Rabbi Meir, the master of miracles. Why is Rabbi Meir known about that? Well, the Talmud tells a story of this appendage to his name. After the destruction of Betar, as I mentioned, Hadrian had very, very harsh decrees. He took Jewish girls and he put them into brothels. One of the Jewish girls that he put into a brothel is the daughter of Hananiah the Tradion, one of the greatest sages of Israel, also one of the ten martyrs. Hananiah the Tradion was also the father-in-law of Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir married Hananiah the Tradion's other daughter. So his sister-in-law got thrown into a brothel. And he went and he snuck in and he pretended like he was a Roman who was going to patronize. He asked for this girl in particular. And he goes over to her and he says, how about you and me? He's testing her. And she starts using excuses and this and that. And it was clear to Rabbi Meir that she had not slipped up. And then he reveals himself. I'm your brother, I'm Rabbi Meir. He took off his costume. He says, I'm going to get you out of here. Now this, by the way, is the, the trait of Rabbi Akiva. This is the consistency of Rabbi Meir. That no matter what, you can be in a, in, in a brothel, I'm going to get you out. I'm your Acher, you're in Gehenom. Don't worry, I'm going to get you out. Don't give up. Uh, we're going to do it. This is the story of the Jewish people. And this is why these people are the ones who build Torah Shabbat Pep. These are the ones who bridge the, the post house and would be the soul of the Gemara. These are the soul of the mission, these, these Rabbanim. And man says, I'll get you out. So he goes to the guard and he offers him an outrageous sum of money to free his sister-in-law, the daughter of Hanadim ben Trajan. Now, in, of course, in good old Roman terms, I'm very happy to take the money, but I can't let her out. If they count the, mo- the, the amount of prostitutes, and your sister-in-law is not here, they're going to have my neck. So Mary says, don't worry. If they come for you, just say, Aloka, the Rabbi Mer, I need The God of Rabbi Mer should protect me. Say those words. So he doesn't believe him. He says, I'll prove it to you. So this Roman guard of the brothel had two ferocious dogs. Two huge dogs. He said, sick the dogs on me. And <laughs> he's only too happy. He lets the dogs jump. And the man says, Aloka did I marry The dogs stop. God's flabbergasted. The dogs stop in midair. And he, he then believes her in there. And he takes the money happily and he lets her go. And the man takes his, do- his sister-in-law and he, es- and he escapes with her. Shortly afterwards, they come looking at the, you know, like Lahabdal, the Nazis, like the Havdal, the Nazis. They counted the barracks. You know, they did, they have the right amount of girls here. And they were one short in this brothel. And they tell the Roman guard, well, what happened? You're, we're, you're one short. And he says, The God of should should answer me. And he immediately is, 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 is flies out of there when he says that. 
He sees this happen, he converts. <laughs> the Talmud said, he converted, this God converts and became a Jew, and he was not only the God of Remer, it became his God as well. This actually, Allah the Remer Anini, the Remer Balanes became, not only the name of Remer, became a famous charity. A, in 1860, Shmuel Salant, we will learn about Jerusalem in the 19th century, in a long time from now, but Shmuel Salant, Jerusalem was, 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 was sparsely inhabited, but around 1820-1830, the population starts going up and up and up. And by 1860, you had a relatively poor population with very little uh, means of of Parnassa, of making a living there, and so they started a charity called Charity of Rabbi Meir Balanes. That became the number one charity in Europe. When people gave charity, they always gave to the Jews in Italy. Historically, way before the Zionists or anything else. So 1860, the charity of and the minute it became, then you give charity, say, Allah and you give the charity. In fact, it's also a school there's a famous school if you forget something for lost objects, also to remember Remer Balhadas. Remer was married to a brilliant lady named Bruria. In fact, Chazal tell us that when Remer couldn't give a share, she pulled down the curtain, <laughs> And she didn't give this year. Burya was brilliant. And they had a very tough life. And at one point they had a miscommunication. And according to some opinions, Burya even committed suicide. Okay? Rabbi Meir, at the end of his life, was traveling the world. He was alone. And he died in Turkey. And his last words, I'll quote and translate the Talmud, bury me by the seashore because the waters that brush the coast, this land, are the waters that brush the holy land. And those that are attached to something that are holy, which is our holy, the waters that touch the Turkey, touch the Holy Land. So if you bury me on the coast of Turkey, that water will touch the Holy Land's water, right? The waters that touch the that touch Turkey touch Israel, so these waters are also holy. Bury me on the coast. I say to say that he was ultimately transported to Tiberias, which if you go to Tiberias today, Meribal Anessis Kever is there. And he's buried in the seashore instead of Tiberio. But Rabbi Meir was the person who formed this bridge of the new world. He was the person who said that the waters are, are, are holy. We are going to connect from one world to, an, to another world. Rabbi Meir was that person who, like his Rabbi Rabbi Akiva, would never give up. No matter what. No matter what the circumstances. Rabbi Meir, even though we don't pass him like him, Mishnah, Stam Mishnah, is like, and they will tell you, Rabbi Meir. The regular Mishnah, if you don't know who the author of the Mishnah is, it's always Rabbi Meir. Look at source number one. I was looking for a, uh, uh, some kind of list of tonight. I found this on Wikipedia. It's not great, but it's doable. Um, if you look, you have Hillel and Shammai. That's, Hillel and Shammai are contemporaries of Herod. Okay, that's before... Right, the, the, right about 50 BCE. So we, we, then you have Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was a primary disciple of Hillel. As mentioned, Yochanan ben Zakkai was a leader who took the Jewish people out of the first revolt. Yochanan ben Zakkai, and on the side of his Gamliel the elder, he was a, a, a son of Hillel, and he would be the Davidic line going down, the house of the, uh, of the Nasi. Yochanan ben Zakkai had two great students, Yeshua ben Hanania and Eliezer ben Herkinus, who had a student, Akiva. Then you see Akiva has a student, Remer. If you look 
on the other side of Rabbi Gamaliel, the synagogue of the elder, it doesn't say Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel comes next. Both Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel will connect to the bottom. That's to Judah Hanasi. Yehuda Hanasi. Judah the prince. A Judah the prince. The third individual tonight we'll discuss is Yehuda Hanasi. Judah the prince, who will be the man to emerge to make his mark and ultimately bring down the Mishnah. Yehuda Hanasi was was a student, as we can see from source one, of Yehuda Bar Eli, but Yosef and Yosef Bar Chalafka. However, interestingly enough, the Talmud in Erev and David Gimel says that he attributed his own personal greatness in the Torah of seeing Rabbi Meir's back. He said, because he was, started, he was still young when he came to the class of Rabbi Meir. He didn't really learn primarily about Rabbi Meir, but he said, all of my greatness is because I saw the back of Rabbi Meir. I saw the back in the lecture. Right? He was facing back here. All you have good seats, you see the front. But he was in the back. He saw Rabbi Meir's back. And as Rabbi Meir was tapping in to the greatness of Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, he was not Rabbi Akiva and not Rabbi Meir in the sense of lineage and starting point. But he was from nobility. He was a descent, direct descendant of Hillel and King David. He was charismatic. He was wealthy. He was intelligent. He was brilliant in all ways. He was the person who was necessary to deal with not only the Jewish people, but the Roman emperors as well. And as God had it, as Hadrian died in 138, Rabbi Yehuda was able to become very good friends with both um, Marcus uh, Antinous Pinus and Marcus Aurelius. The Talmud says that Yehuda Nasi in particular had a very good relationship with Antoninus. Now, historians debate, who is this Antoninus? Some say it's Antoninus Pius. Others say it's Antoninus Marcus Aurelius, because Marcus Aurelius was also an Antoninus. Most historians say it was Marcus Aurelius, Antoninus Marcus Aurelius, which would make sense, because the Talmud talks about how Antoninus and Norikiva would always talk about philosophy, about life, um, Rabbi Huda Nasi, Judah the Prince, was the advisor of Antoninus. Well, if you look at historians, Marcus Aurelius was called the Philosopher King. He is referred to as the Philosopher King. Both the Ocasus, the biographer, his own biographer, referred to him as the Philosopher King. The early Christians, Justin Martyr, um, Melito, also give the title. Listen to the words of Herodian. Of, about uh, on Marcus Aurelius. Alone of the emperors, he gave proof of his learning, not by mere words or knowledge of philosophical doctrines, but by his blameless character and temperate way of life. It was in this time, this moment of silence, of, of this kind of small golden age where Marcus Aurelius and Rabbi Huda Nasi had such a good relationship that at that time, Rabbi realized it's now or never to record the Mishnah. Now, in this time of chaos, it was more than just a time of chaos of peace. They realized that tomorrow, Rome can turn again. And they had suffered so much. But beyond the suffering, it was also a very new reality. And that is that the Jewish people had become dispersed. The land of Israel was slowly but surely losing its population center. 
First of all, there was no temple. People didn't, weren't, weren't that interested in coming to Israel. I mean, the Babylonian Jews weren't coming. Other Jews had went all the way to North Africa, to, to the little countries like Morocco, and Libya, even up to Spain. And the Jewish traders followed the Roman legions up to Gaul, modern day France and Germany. And there were there, there are sites where historical evidence shows there were Jewish settlements two thousand years ago in Germany and France. They, they had followed the Roman legions up, kind of like San Francisco, you know, the 49ers, the Jews were here with the 49ers. But as the Romans went up north, the Jews were there with them selling and buying. So the Jews had become dispersed. And many, many Jews were going all around the world. And as opposed to having a central Jewish world, people can study, there is now a real Jewish diaspora. And the concern was that as Jews spread out, if you don't do it now, we're going to end up with 15 different Judaisms. In fact, within 150 years, there will be practically no Jews left in the land of Israel. But Yehuda Nasi was prophetic in this, and he so seized the moment. He could have said, ah, nothing will happen. I won't be concerned about it. I won't plan for tomorrow. Right now, me and Marcus Aurelius, we're best of friends. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? But he saw the reality of the world around him, and he decided to redact the oral law. He decided to redact the Mishnah. Now, one of the reasons why the oral law, the oral Torah, was never recorded, what, from generation to generation, because if it's recorded, it can become frozen. The Medrash Tanchuma and the Talmud and Gideon expound that the principles of the oral Torah stayed the same, but the application of these principles was meant to be adapted to all types of people in all types of circumstances. If you write it down, it's a danger of becoming frozen. In, in the old days, you had experts in all areas. It means there were Jewish scholars that would go through the oral law. There were notes. People had notes. But everyone became an expert and you would pass it and you would pass it down. Individuals kept notes. Rimeir actually was a note keeper, the main note keeper of his generation. The brilliance of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi is that he was able to start Mishnah by not freezing the law. By making it that the way Mishnah was crafted is we can figure out what to do today about a video camera or a car on Shabbos, how, what Jewish law will say about all kinds of DNA treatments to medical procedures, the things which they never could have imagined because it all will come from these principles. It even our the way Rabbi Huda Nasi and the sages crafted the oral law is they they kept that reality of a living Torah, not like conservative does who doesn't take the Torah seriously, but as a with the principle of the Torah. Look at source number two. This is from Rabbi Arya Kaplan, the Handbook of Jewish Law, which is an excellent book, by the way, for those who want some um, not so light reading but good reading. The oral ta- Torah was originally meant to be transmitted by word of mouth. It was transmitted from master to student in such a manner that if the student had any question, he would be able to ask and thus avoid ambiguity. A written text, on the other hand, no matter how perfect, is always subject to misinterpretation. Okay, I can only tell you how many people, how often do I get Rabbi, I read in a book so-and-so, and, so, and some, the person was doing something on the Sabbath or Kashras, 
even if they could English book with very explanatory lots of notes, and people make mistakes, let alone very esoteric topics, much more complex topics, or applying one law to another law, because there's always so much you can write. There's always new grays and new permutations. I saw this law, so it must be, in this case, it would be applicable as well. And you give up asking to figure it out. If the entire Torah would have been given in writing, everyone would be able to interpret it as he desired. This would lead to division and discord among people who follow the Torah in different ways. The oral Torah, on the other hand, would require a central authority to preserve it, thus assuring the unity of Israel. In other words, not just any, no one was able just to get up and say, oh, I know what the Torah says. It made it that you went to the Sanhedrin, you went to the rabbis, and you had one authority, it was one hierarchy of understanding the Torah. Look at source number three. So why do we write it down? Number 12. This is from the Maimonides, the Ramam's introduction to Mishnah Torah. In the beginning of Maimonides' Mishnah Torah, which is his magnum opus, his code of Jewish law, he discusses the writing down of the oral Torah. Our holy teacher wrote the Mishnah. From the time of Moshe to our holy teacher, no one had written a work from which the oral law was publicly taught. Rather, in each generation, the head of the then existing court, where prophet of the time wrote down for his private uses, notes on tradition, the traditions he had heard from his teachers, and he taught in the public from memory. Let's get to number 15. Why did our holy teacher do so? And did not leave the things as they were because he saw that the number of students was continuing to go down. Calamities were continually happening. Wicked government was extending its domain and increasing in power. And the Israelites were wandering and emigrating to remote places. He thus wrote a work to serve as a handbook for all, so that it would be rapidly studied and would not be forgotten. And throughout his life, he and his court continued giving public instruction in the Mishnah. This was an emergency decree, and they wrote it in a way of where it would not be locked in, right? where we, the, oral, the oral tradition. Now, a typical question, this is why I, I wanted to deal with this, very often, Rabbi, if we had a strong oral tradition, right, you pass from student to teacher, well, anyone who learns the Talmud, you know, you know, I remember in law schools, and these, all these people who knew nothing about Talmud would say to me, oh, that's so Talmudic. <laughs> you knew that somebody said to you had no idea what Talmud was. It's so Talmudic, because usually it wasn't that profound. Talmud is a lot more profound than that. But Talmudic is hair-splitting, you know, back-breaking, and, and arguing about lots of points. And are there many arguments? Now, guess what? There are no arguments about basic principles. Nobody argues, do you keep Shabbos? Nobody argues, do you keep pork? Nobody argues, could you, you know, not keep your umptif or could you be with your wife at certain times of the month? Here are no major mitzvahs, not zero major arguments. All of the arguments of the Talmud are primarily in rabbinic things, for the most part, and they're the minutia of rabbinics. There are some things that discuss in the biblical, but it's the minutia, it's the details. It's the how, the how-to, the basic, there is never a disagreement about. Okay, and we'll see later that how remarkable that is. Look at source number four. This is from the Ravid. There are three Ravids. This is Ravid number one. Rabbi Avram ben David, who wrote the Sefer Kabbalah, which is the, tra- the chain of transmission. He was a 12th century Spanish sage. 
And if a person wants to claim, since the rabbis disagreed in several places, I cast doubt upon their statements. You must rebuke him and explain to him that the sages never disagreed about the principles of the commandments, but only regarding the details of their application. Skip. For example, the sages did not disagree about whether one should light candles for Shabbos. They were only divided in respect to the type of substances to be used in those candles. Okay? The Mishnah is broken down into six major basic areas of Jewish law, which cover the gamut of halakha. That is Zra'im. Zra means seeds, which cover all the agricultural rules, laws for foods, as well as the blessings. Moed, which is holidays, which deals with the Sabbath, Shabbos, and other Jewish holidays. Noshim, which means woman, which are examined all of the issues between man and woman, such as marriage, divorce, etc. Nizikin, which deals with tort, criminal, civil laws. Kachim, which means holy things, which cover all the laws of the temple. And Taharas, which means pure things, which went through all the, the, the laws of spiritual purity. There were 63 tractates of Mishnah, covering 525 prophets, 525 chapters. Now, Behuda finishes the Mishnah, approximately 190 of the common era, and in, in Sipuri, which is in the Galilee, that's where he lived, um, and died shortly after. Now, interestingly, most archaeologists, and they have actually found evidence of this, assume that, we, that Behuda Hanasi and many of his contemporaries are buried, buried in Beit Sha'arim, which is not far from Sipuri, and there was actually the previous place of the Sanhedrin, they found all kinds of caves with evidence that these people were buried um, around there. But Beit Sha'arim actually can still be visited. It's not, it's good in North Israel. You see a lot of these sites are still completely there. Um, uh, and, and interesting from an archaeological perspective. I just want to continue, we're going to skip ahead a little bit today to the writing of the Talmud. Because the Mishnah was written in classical Hebrew. Mishnah is very easy to understand. Easy Hebrew, right? Mishnah Hebrew, it's written concisely. Um, in, in many places, it's cryptic what the Mishnah is talking about because they didn't want to write down all of the oral law. Because again, once you write down all the oral law, you have a lot of people who abuse it and misuse it. And they're not going to go to the sages to do that. Haraya, the greatest proof is, after the Septuagint is translated to Greek, guess who pops up shortly later? All kinds of cult groups, including the early Christians, who have the Bible translated for them. Most pagans who convert to Christianity, they use the Septuagint, and they would then interpret it as they liked. Right? There is a danger of writing it down. The Talmud will, have, will continue the Mishnah's thing of having many things cryptic. So as much as written down, you still have to have a teacher. I personally have been involved in studying with some of the most brilliant minds, from Ivy League universities, as in Philadelphia in particular, and you have PhDs who can't crack the Talmud. And you know, I mean, people who are mathematic geniuses, you know, science geniuses, history, if you don't have a Rebbe Talmud relationship, it's very. I don't know what they were doing in times of Rome. So, so they have a very hard time. I, I, I once heard a story that there were two Nereid Israel guys who were studying 
in Johns Hopkins in the library and passed by them one of the great, um, I forgot what his name is, famous archaeologists uh, who was in Hopkins. You know, you know who he was? Uh, he, he's very into biblical uh, archaeology. So he said to them, he saw them studying, he said, you know what, I tell you the truth, I memorized Aramaic. And I've been trying, this is before art school, in the 1950s, I've been trying to read Talmud, I can't figure it out. Can you explain to me what's going on? He was a guy who learns Aramaic. He couldn't figure out what's going on. It still necessitates a Rebbe. Okay? Even, if, I can give you a tell, I, I learned yeshivas for many years. And to, you, when you speak to a great Rosh Hashiva, you'll see there's multiple levels of understanding things. There are tremendous depth, and there's lots of hidden messages in the Talmud. So even when we write it down, we still keep that element where you need a Rebbe, and that allows people not to misinterpret it, and it allows people to have that connection to the, to, to, um, the true tradition of Misurdo. At the time of Yehuda Nasi, it was not yet necessary to write down Gemara, but things got increasingly worse. As you learn about next week, the early Christians would badger the Jews to no end. The yeshivas had hard, harder times. And it came to the point in the 500 of the common era where they ultimately would write down the Gemara. But before that, Rehuda Nasi had a contemporary called Rabbi Chia. Chia is Aramaic for Chaim. Chia means life. Rehia was his nephew who wrote the Brises. Brisa means outside. Brisa was outside. And what Brisa was, they flesh out the Mishnah. So you had Mechia adding the Brisa, which came afterwards, and they fleshed out the, 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 the Mishnah in that way. So when you learn Gemara, you'll see that there's lots of Mishnah and there's lots of Brisa. Ultimately, the sages both in, Jeru- in Israel and in Babylonia began to work on the Talmud, to write down the Talmud in the same way of the, the mission, but to expand on it. In Israel, they started first. They got more nervous quickly because they had the early Christians there. Babylonia became increasingly popular because where they were at that time in Persia, there were no early Christians, and they had much more tranquility. The Jerusalem Talmud was actually not in Jerusalem. There were no Jews in Jerusalem. That edict of the Romans had not changed <laughs> at all. It was written in Tiberius in Tiberia, the, the home of the last home of the Sanhedrin. It was only called the Jerusalem Talmud because out of respect to the real home of the Sanhedrin, which was Yushalayim, they called it the Jerusalem Talmud. But it was never written in Jerusalem. It was only in Tiberia. It was only in Tiberias. However, it ended short. They didn't get to finish it. It was much more cryptic. It's more difficult to understand. And the Babylonian Talmud, which, which was a complete project, which finished at the end, that became the bread and butter of, the, of what we study today. Now, the, the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud go together. They're, they're not in, contra- in contradiction. The few places where they are, we follow the Babylonian Talmud. In the Talmud, there's not only the Halacha, it's called the Agadita. The Agadita has lots of stories, and many of these stories have the cryptic, theological, philosophical secrets of Judaism. And they were purposely hidden, some in stories which almost sound nonsensical, some in stories which are historical, some in stories which there's a simple meaning, but a deep meaning as well. That was also put there so people would have to learn by teachers. 
Okay. Ultimately, we would end up with a Talmud which has Mishnah and the Gemara, which means Gemara means an Aramaic uh, tradition or in Hebrew, Finnish. It was the Finnish problem would have the Gemara and the Mishnah. Next week, we will see how important it was for this writing of the Torah down. That ultimately, the oral Torah, had it not been done at that exact moment, we would have lost our tradition. We were under tremendous pressures at that time by the Christians to assimilate. I want to just give a brief excursus about the oral law, about the oral Torah. Because we were already discussing it. I want to deal with a couple of issues which are very commonly asked. I, some of these sources you will not have, but I will update it, as I said, and you'll get it tonight or tomorrow. Common question. Rabbi, how do we know the oral ta- Torah always exists? And I can't tell you how often I get that question by secular Jews. Usually, confuse people who come from a somewhat background, because m- most secular Jews who don't come from any background never heard the oral Torah. <laughs> you know, as I said two weeks ago, a lot of them never heard of Jeremiah, or Yeshaya, they definitely didn't hear, hear of an oral Torah, of a, of a Talmud. So how do you know the oral Torah always existed? So I want to give one of the most famous examples, and that's from the Devarim, Parakid Beis. Listen to how the Torah says the law of Shechita. I'm going to say it in English because you don't have the Hebrew in front of you. You may kill of your herd and flock, which the Lord gave you as I have commanded you. And you may eat within your gates after all the desire of your soul. As I have commanded you. What is this I as I have commanded you? Where do we find anywhere in the written law the law of ritual slaughter, the law of Shkita? You don't see it anywhere. What does it mean as I have commanded to you? It's not in Bereshis. It's not in Shmos. It's not in Vayikra. What does it mean as I have commanded to you? How do you do shechita? How do you ritually slaughter? What was the Torah talking about? Hey, that is showing that most mitzvahs are, are as I have commanded to you. Another example. If you look at when we're given tefillin, listen to the verses on tefillin. And you shall place these words on your hearts and, you, and on your souls and bind them for a sign on your hands. And they shall be frontlets before your eyes, totofas, between your eyes. And you, sh- and you shall write them down upon a doorpost of your house and upon your gates. What are tefillin? Are they red? Red tefillin? Are they circular? What's in the boxes of the tefillin? What are you writing down? What word? We have no idea what the Torah is telling us. What are tefillin? What, what is it referring to? Again, already copy. We don't have the source. But it'll, I'll give it, it'll have it tonight or tomorrow. There is no description of them nor any hint as to how they may be made. The Torah was not meant to be a mere book lying on a shelf. It was meant to be part of the everyday life of an entire people. And as such, it could only be transmitted by the word of mouth. The oral Torah was handed down from teacher to disciple for almost 1,500 years until the harsh Roman persecutions finally threatened to extinguish it completely. Finally, some 1,700 years ago, it was written down to form the Talmud. Talmud itself, the Talmud itself cites Tefillin as a prime example of a case where the full description of a commandment is found only in the Oral Torah. Now when you think about it, when the Talmud is sent on the Jewish people, they had Tefillin and they were ritually slaughtering, 
you don't find any debate amongst any of those laws. Nowhere in Jewish history, nowhere, nowhere in Christian history, nowhere in any history book do you ever see people question, do Tefillin really look like this? Does this really have to It was completely, the Talmud and the Mishnah, at the two periods, were completely accepted by the entire Jewish people. It would only be hundreds of years later that you'd have Karaites popping up for many other reasons which we'll discuss, saying, well, I don't know about this oral law. But when the Talmud comes out, and, and truth is, if you ever ask a carrot, they have ritual slaughter. So you ask them, oh, you slaughter your animals. How do you slaughter it? They have no idea how to answer it. They can't answer any of these questions. It's, 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 it's almost comical to get into conversation with them. Like, oh, you do. They rely on the sages themselves. But it was completely accepted. And it was not any matter of debate amongst these topics. The point is that both the oral Torah and the written Torah were given concurrently. So how do they work together? Look at source number five. This is of Shamshim of Hirsch, who had to deal with reform. One of the things, besides the written law, that the reform rejected was the oral law completely. The written law, reform contends to this day, is not for Moses at Sinai, but it's a Jewish book. It's a persuasive Jewish book. I mean, there are a lot of cultural things. The oral law, they didn't even deal with. So I first dealt with these people. Look at source number five. The written law, the Torah Shebech is to be the Torah Shebaal Peh in the relation of short notes on a full extensive lecture on any scientific subject. For the student who has heard the whole lecture, short notes are quite sufficient to bring back afresh to his mind at any time the whole subject of the lecture. For him, a word an added mark of interrogation, or exclamation, a dot, the underlining word, etc., is often quite sufficient to recall to his mind a whole series of thoughts or a mark, etc. To those who had not heard the lecture from the Master, such notes would be completely useless if they were trying to reconstruct the scientific contents of the lecture literally. From such notes, they would of necessity make many errors. What is Rav Hirsch saying? Rav Hirsch is saying that when we have the written law, we have the short notes of the great lecture given at Sinai. You can't understand the Torah by being a Christian fundamentalist, by just reading the Bible and reading the shorthand notes. You can't, you're you going to make mistakes. Imagine hearing a brilliant lecture and writing down a few notes. Jim, you're, you're, you're into science, Chaim. Could you, could you, if you had to make a few notes, would people misconstrue? and make mistakes, they'd say an eye for an eye literally makes an eye. When it didn't mean an eye, I, I had a friend, I went to the story on a Shabbos, who was a professor at Villanova. He's a brilliant law, he's a brilliant Talmudist, and he's a law professor as well. So they asked him to give a class at a Christian uh, school, and he gets to this Christian school, evangelical Christian school, and they asked him to talk about the Talmud. So he goes to the Christian school and he says to them all, how many of you know the Bible? <laughs> Everyone raises their hand. Uh, we all know the Bible. And he says, what's the first commandment of the Bible? Fruitful and multiply. Everyone hey, these people are, you know, Christian fundamentalists, they read it. What does fruitful and multiply mean? No. No one raises their hand. 
One child, two children, three children, four children, 40 children. Is it never enough? What does it mean? It's his first mitzvah. He said, if he, the Talmud tells you all of this and more, it explains everything. It's, the, all you have in the written law is shorthand notes. A person who tried to, to understand Judaism with the written law, he's going to make mistakes. He's only seen part of the lecture. He's only seen the shorthand notes. Rabbi Kala, the Rashiva from Lakewood, used to say that the, the, the written law, Torah is like a global map, seeing the big cities, and the street map is the oral law. You can't know where you're going unless you have the oral law. You're going to make grave mistakes. You're going to be missing the pulse of what it means to Jew. You're not going to know how to decide Jewish law. This, and I want to emphasize this, and I want to emphasize this again, is a crucial, crucial point to be made in history. The Gentiles, and not only the Gentiles, but Reform and later Conservative Jewry are going to claim that Judaism changes at the time of Judah Hanasi, and a little bit before by Hillel. It's called Rabbinic Judaism. Until then, there was Biblical Judaism, and then there is Rabbinic Judaism. You can look, if for any source, when I, actually, when I got that, that, that chart from tonight, I saw a thing. Rabbinic Judaism. <laughs> Rabbinic Judaism. Like, oh, like there's a new Judaism that comes out which is ridiculous. Because again, you, could you imagine the rabbis trying to convince the entire Jewish nation how to pronounce villain, how to do ritual slaughter? I mean, it, 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 it's impossible to make that. The Torah was always given as one. You never find a debate about any of these core issues. And even when the Sanhedrin passed it, it was universally accepted. Now, you don't find 40 different Jewish people. Ultimately, when you find Jews in Spain in the 7th century, you find Jews in Iran, find Jews in Morocco, find Jews in Gaul, they're all doing the same thing. And they weren't all convinced that in the 200 years earlier, that this must be what you heard at Sinai. Right? The Torah was always given at once. The greatest fallacy, and these are for people who don't want to keep Torah is to call it Rabbinic Judaism. It's a newfound Judaism. That is false. Right? The Torah, oral Torah, there was no change but for Rabbi Yehuda Nasi being forced to lead the Jewish people to write it down. And the biggest proof is it was never a matter of contention among any of the Jews. There'll be no contention until many years later, again, until the Karaites come, and they'll disappear from history, but we'll learn about the Karaites as well. Look at source number six. It's just a beautiful source. This is from the Talmud in Shabbos 31a. But we'll read, the, we'll read the whole thing in English. We're going to read the Hebrew later. Our rabbis taught, a certain heathen once came before Shammai and asked them, how many Torah kinds of Torah have you? Two, he replied, the written Torah and the oral Torah. I believe you with respect to the written, but not with respect to the oral Torah. Make me a proselyte, a ger, on condition that you teach me, to me the written Torah only. He scolded it and repulsed him in anger. That was Shammai. When he went before Hillel, he accepted him as a proselyte. On the first day, he taught him Aleph. Second day, he taught him Bet. Third day, he taught him Gimel, Dalid. The first four letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The following day, he reversed them to him. But yesterday, he did not teach to me thus, he protested. Must you then not rely upon me? Then rely upon me with respect to the oral Torah as well. It goes much deeper. Do you know that if you don't have an oral Torah, you can't even read the words of the written Torah? Do you know that 
all Christians, all anyone who reads the written Torah has to learn the oral Torah. Because you can't, there's no vowels in the written Torah. And guess whose version they're all following? The oral Torah's version. The Septuagint is going to be based on our tradition. Otherwise, ches, don't eat ches, lam, and beis, and basar. What's ches, lam, and beis? What's ches, lam, and beis? It could be read as milk, chalav, or chalav, fat. How do you know what it means? Is it chalav? Don't eat meat and milk? Or don't eat meat and fat? You have no idea. You can't even read the written law unless you have an oral tradition. There are no vows. If you're going to trust me by this, you got to trust me by this. Right? It's very much deeper. It means that the whole written Torah, you can't even open it. Just to, we'll look at the, number one. You have the Ohana source. This is also from Maimonides, the Rambam, introduction to Mishnah Torah. All the commandments that were given to Moshe at Sinai were given together with their interpretation. Listen how the Rambam, Maimonides, learns the verse. As it is written, this is Exodus 24.12, and I will give thee the tablets of stone and the law and the commandment. Law is the written law, the commandment is the interpretation. We are commanded to fulfill the law according to the commandment, which is the world, like Shrita, as I commanded. That is how you do Shrita. And I want to end with number eight. I mentioned tonight that we had three great scholars. We had Rabbi Akiva, we had Rabbi Meir, we had Rabbi Huda Nasi, who really preserved Torah for the Jewish people. We'll learn next week Judaism is going to change. It's not going to change spiritually, but the persecutions will become great. Next week we're going to pick up with the early Christians, and really, the beginning of Christianity will go back to the beginning of Christianity and what that means for the Jewish people because our next 1700, 1800 years are going to be with that reality. But what's going to keep the Jewish people, what has not only kept us spiritually as in the law, but the soul of the Jewish people is going to be the Talmud. It's going to be this spirit of Rabbi Akiva that the rock can be made a, a hole in it that I'll always see the good, that the Torah is eternal. Don't worry when you're in, in Nazi Germany. Don't worry when you're in communist Russia. Don't worry when you're under the Shah or the Khomeini in Iran. Don't worry when your Morano's hiding in Spain in the 16th century. We will be victorious. Listen to her, Barawan is an imminent boy. This is actually an article, 2005, the Jerusalem Post. Go to the... To the, to the was the boldest part. Throughout Jewish history, the Jewish people in all of their lands of dispersion basically lived a Talmudic way of life, differing little from the ways of the lives of their ancestors in Babylonia during the period of the compilation and editing of the Talmud. It was the Talmud naturally based upon the sanctity and integrity of the Torah, the original law that bound world Jewry together in spite of the enormous distances of space and society that exile imposed upon it. Skip to the next bolt. Even though the vast majority of Jews were hardly Talmudic scholars, this field was pretty much reserved for the rabbis and judges of Israel. Almost all Jews were aware of the Talmud, its values, messages, decisions, and stories. It was the guiding book in their lives, not only in matters of ritual law, but also in terms of personal behavior, 
societal goals, and vision of the Jewish future. It was almost as though through a process of osmosis that Jews absorbed within themselves an appreciation and respect for the Talmud. Eventually it could be said that the book referred to in the phrase people of the book was the Talmud. It is no surprise therefore that the Talmud became the target and flashpoint of opposition to Judaism, its values and practices as well as its practitioners. The burning of the Talmud was a regular part of Christian persecution of the Jews throughout Europe from the time of Louis, Louis, Louis the, the IX in the 13th century to Nazi Germany in the 20th century. Again, all those dissident Jews who rejected the traditions of the oral law and sought to create new forms of Jewish life also attacked the Talmud bitterly and discredited its ideas and formulations. From the Karaites in the 7th century to the Yvetska, Yvetska, the Jewish section of the Bolshevik party, Jacob, if I say it afterwards, that Stalin would later purge in the 20th century, the Talmud was vilified and its pages torn and destroyed by Jews who were bitterly opposed to its teaching and who recognized that no new form of Judaism could ever take hold as long as the Talmud was still studied, respected, and loved within the Jewish world. Nevertheless, like the Talmud, Jewish people that it protects has weathered all storms. It is the main text and study and topic of study in all yeshivas throughout the Jewish world. Competence in its study is the first requirement for all rabbis and teachers who maintain and defend the veracity of Jewish tradition from Sinai until our day. The Talmud is old, but it remains fresh and vital. Its study is complex, challenging, but it is a labor of love. For understanding the Talmud is the way to understanding the Jewish soul, the Jew that is within us all, and that is our true connection to our past and to our destiny. This was the gift of the Akiva, of the Emer, of the Yudanasi gave to us to connect our past, to build our future, Next week, early Christianity. Thank you.